can we pray? Amen. So we're in 2 John chapter, only one chapter, but verse 9 of 2 John. Now, to back up just a few moments here, and we're not going to back all the way up or anything, but if you back up to verse 7 of 2 John, here the Bible says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. We mentioned this last week. Now, one of the reasons he brings this up is because the Gnostics did not believe that Christ came in the flesh, uh, among other things as well. And so he is addressing them yet again. He says, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. We talk about how that means they are deceiving others with this idea, and they are uh, against Christ. Verse 8 says, look to yourselves, and we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. We mentioned last time how in verse 8, how we look forward to those things, you know, as Christians, we get to have heaven as our home one day, we remain faithful to God. But he also uses the idea there, and not to get through, the, not to go into all this again, but he says that we do not lose those things we work for. And we mentioned last week is being faithful to God, is it a work? Yes, it is, right? If it's not a work, it means that we're faithful to God with no effort. But to be faithful to God and to remain faithful to God, it takes effort, it takes time, it takes study, it takes being humble, which means we repent when we make a mistake, when we, when we sin and disobey God. And so faith is definitely a work. And that's definitely something he, he is implying here in verse 8, when it says that, that we do not lose those things we work for. We remain faithful to God for a host of reasons. But one of the greatest ones of all is that heaven is waiting at the end, right? You know, when we do things in this life, generally speaking, we do them for a reason. Now, if you ask a child, why did you do that? You're going to hear, oh, I don't know. But if someone asks you why you are faithful to God, we're probably going to have at least one answer because we want to go to heaven. You know, now we understand there's more to that. We want to have the forgiveness of our sins. We want to have fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And the list goes on and on and on. He, and then he says in verse 8, that we may receive a full reward. We mentioned last time that the full reward, at least in my mind, seems to imply heaven. We know there are other rewards on this earth before we get to heaven that are part of being a faithful Christian. Again, salvation, forgiveness of our sins, fellowship with with Christians, fellowship with God, but that full reward being all those things, plus ultimately heaven as our home one day. So that, those two verses kind of help us remember what we're talking about as we begin looking here at verse 9, because verse 7 and 8 deals with definitely remaining faithful to God, which would imply that we follow his word, right? Now, if you look at verse 9, he says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. He who abides in, in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Now, first thing, what does whoever mean in verse 9? Does that mean anybody and everybody? Yeah. Whoever means literally anyone. It doesn't matter who they are what their status, quote-unquote, may be in this world. God, as we have seen throughout the Scriptures, is not one who shows partiality. We know He humbles servants. We know He humbles kings, as we've seen throughout the Scriptures, right? 
And so we look here in verse 9, when he says whoever, that literally means it doesn't matter who it is. Whoever, he says, transgresses. What does that word transgress mean? If we transgress a law, what have we done? Broken, Broken it. We've disobeyed it, right? And so whoever transgresses or break, disobeys, and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. So you have the action of doing it. Then you have, it would seem, the continual action of doing it. It's not the one time you sin, you're not abiding the doctrine of Christ, you're thrown out of, you know, thrown out of the church or something like that, because we all sin, but repentance is what keeps us here, what keeps us remaining in the light of God. Transgressions, transgresses there in verse 9, and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. So whoever breaks it and continues to not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God, right? There in verse 9. Does not abide. Abide meaning that we keep it, right? That we walk in it. And if we mentioned there in verse 9, notice he's very specific. He says the doctrine of who? Christ. Of Christ, right? It doesn't say Paul. It doesn't say Peter. It doesn't mention any of the other apostles here. He doesn't go back and talk about Moses here. He's keeping the old law. He says the doctrine of Christ. And the doctrine of Christ began in the New Testament time period, which we now live in, which began, we know, in Acts chapter 2, when the church began, right? And so at that moment, the, the New Testament law goes into effect, the doctrine of Christ. So we abide in that doctrine, but the person who transgresses and does not abide in that doctrine of Christ, it says, now notice, does not have God. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to just think about it for a second, then you can respond. But when people today say that they are a Christian and they attend a denomination, are they actually a Christian according to verse 9? Now, keep in mind, to answer that question, you have to ask yourself, what do denominations teach? Denominations teach the doctrine of Christ. Well, for honest, we would say they teach probably part of it, right? They believe Christ came to the earth. They believe he died on the cross and rose again. But as you get a little more into it, you start seeing deviations from the doctrine of Christ. One of those things being, for example, you look in the leadership position in the church, you have elders and deacons described there, and persons in Second Timothy there, when it's First Timothy. Um, and in Titus, which we'll get to later, uh, you have deacons and you have elders and you have preachers that are mentioned. And in the churches of Christ, you have where there are qualified men who meet those qualifications that we've mentioned before in the past. You have deacons, you have elders. But in denominations, is that the case? Not always, no. Not always, no. They have what? They have pastors, which most of the time it's a man who stands up here, right? In the denominational world, I would be a pastor. In the Bible sense, I'm a preacher, a minister or an evangelist, because a pastor actually applies to an elder. We're going to get a little bit off base here, but so if they do not have, and we're just putting it one area, we can look at salvation and we find very quickly they're not by the doctrine of Christ. But if they do not have elders or deacons or pastors, and they only have, as many times, they have deacons and they will have a pastor. Is that the biblical definition to have a single, quote, pastor and multiple deacons? Well, no, that's not in the Bible. 
But the most important thing, we understand organization is part of that, leadership is part of it. But the most important aspect when we talk about the doctrine of Christ has to be one particular topic, salvation, right? Now, if a group deviates from the Bible doctrine, the doctrine of Christ concerning salvation, can we go to heaven following that doctrine? The answer would have to be no, right? And so the doctrine of Christ includes, we know, an umbrella of things, organization, leadership, worship, which we haven't got into. That's a whole other list of things we'd see in the denominational world. And then salvation, right? And so if they do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, which includes salvation, worship, leadership, organization, those types of things, then they do not have, according to verse 9, they do not have God which means they are not pleasing inside of God. Are you talking about an individual or a congregation? Now, if you look at verse 9 again, he says, He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Now, having both the Father and the Son is just a way of us of saying here that we have approval from God and, of course, approval from Christ. And so you think about verse 9, it really tells us a lot in just those few lines there. Now that doctrine of Christ and the o- obedience to it determines if we have God, if we have approval of God. Any comments before we move on to verse 10? Let's look at verse 10 now. If anyone comes to you, and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him to your house, nor greet him. Now, let's add add verse 11 here. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, greeting is not the idea. We're talking about greeting here. It's not the idea that you can't when someone comes up to you who is, let's say, a denominational preacher, which we understand to be off on a lot of things, and they reach out and want to shake your hand just trying to talk to you. Are you supposed to say, no, get away from me? I'm going to shake your hand, probably. Does that mean I'm sharing their evil deeds? No. What he's talking about here is that we do not greet them and say, well, we wish you the best, because I don't. And neither does God, right? And we're going to talk about this later, the idea of wishing someone Godspeed who is teaching things or contrary to the doctrine of Christ. You don't do that. We're not talking about the idea that we don't talk to them, because sometimes conversations is how we start having Bible studies, even with denominational preachers or, or whoever it may be. And so this idea of greeting them is you do not treat them like they're one of your own. We talk with them. We may, we may uh, you know, try to have a study with them, which I know one brother <laughs> told me one time, you know, <clears throat> I kept seeing this denominational preacher at places and we kept talking and it eventually got to where he didn't want to see me because every time I, we talked to him, we talked talk about the Bible and he'd get mad and leave. Now, what did he do? Did he intentionally do that? Knowing him? No, he did not. But that is an opportunity. Those opportunities are to teach and to try to help someone consider things in a more biblical way, right? And so if anyone comes to you, <clears throat> he says, and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him in your house nor greet him. For he greets, for he greets him and shares his evil deeds. We do not want to do anything that would cause someone to think that we are okay with what they're doing if they are in the denominational world. I mean, we don't want to convey the idea that we're okay or in agreement with their ideas, even though they're different from ours. Sometimes we hear things like, well, uh, you know, 
you ever heard the phrase unity in diversity? What I mean by that is we all get along even though we all have different beliefs. It doesn't work too well, does it? Because then let's be honest, can you get to can you get through through the most important topic of all salvation with diversity? No. Because when you say you don't have to be baptized to have permission to your sins, I'm gonna start quoting scripture from Acts chapter two and beyond, and we're gonna have some some difficulties coming to the truth. Well, one of us will, right? And so uh, if we look at verses 10 and 11, and it's not that we do not use opportunities to greet, to talk to people about the gospel, because if you shun people, I think sometimes, well, it used to be Amish would shun people, but if you shun someone, you're going to lose opportunity to talk with them. But the idea in verses 10 and 11 is we don't do things that would convey the idea that we're okay with their beliefs, that we would go along with them. Hey, we wish you the best and pat them on the back. No, that's not going to happen. Now, myself and I know a few others who have times, you know, you talk to someone in the, in the a domination world sometimes, say, well, we wish you the best. I can't return that. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be harsh, but I'm not going to say God's feed to you because the Bible tells us we're not to do that. We shouldn't do anything that would encourage someone or think we're, we're trying to encourage them in spreading their false doctrine. Because as you see in, verses, in verse 9, false doctrine separates people from God, doesn't it? So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, which is the doctrine of Christ, do not receive him to your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. We do not want to uh, have anyone think that we're okay with their false teaching because we shouldn't be okay with it. You know, we should use all those opportunities to try to, to talk with them about the Bible. Uh, even though it may not be successful, we can use those opportunities. Uh, looking at verse 12, he says, having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face. Our joy may be full. Now, this is pretty simple, right? I, will write, I don't want to write a whole long letter is what he's saying, because I'm going to come to you pretty soon. Uh, he says, I hope to see you face to face, that our joy may be full. Do you remember why he says their joy, he has joy in them? You go back to the beginning of Second John. It's because they're abiding the doctrine of, of Christ, right? They're following the truth, right? He loves them. He loved, you remember, he mentioned at the very beginning of 2 John, the elect lady whom I love in truth. He loved them because they're following the truth, following the doctrine of Christ, going back to verse 9. And so he had joy over them. He wants to come to them and you see them face to face. He says there that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you there in verse 13, he says, and he says, amen. Now, uh, the children of Lex's sister, may, uh, the, the woman to whom John wrote here in verse uh, 13, could just be those who, whom this person has helped teach the scriptures to or has been a godly influence to. Uh, I don't think necessarily means the literal children of this person. Um, I suppose it could. But he, he wishes them well and he hopes to see them. I know that very soon as we see their verses 12 and 13. Now that brings an end to Second John. And before we move on to Third John, and I know that I am down to teach this through, I think, through December. And so obviously we're going to move on past first, second, third John here pretty soon. But do we have any comments or questions before we begin uh, these uh, third John? One thing I was thinking about is in verse 7, talks about Antichrist. It's not the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. Anyone 
who doesn't confess Jesus as an antichrist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and we mentioned that before because, and it's point to point out because there's a lot of people today, and especially in the nominational world, who believe there's a quote antichrist coming. Do you remember the Left Behind series, those books that came into movies that were not accurate to say the least? Well, they included things like that, and those things a lot of times stem from the Book of Revelation, where there's where <laughs> the most figurative book in the Bible, and they decide they're going to write a bunch of books and movies on it. So. It kind of gives you an idea of where they're going to go from. We know Hollywood is not always accurate, right? <laughs> uh, but, we, you know, the Antichrist, like Sherry was saying, as you've seen in Second John, I think it was also mentioned in the First John, is anyone who's against Christ. I mean, when we, if we ourselves were to say, I'm not going to have anything to do with the church anymore, I'm not going to have anything to do with God or Christ or the Bible, could we, in that sense, be an Antichrist? Yeah, because we're against Christ. We also would be anti-God too, right? And so it's anyone who is against Christ, not just not a singular uh, uh, person. <clears throat> if there's not anything else. Let's go ahead and begin uh, Third John. And Russell, yeah. Um, for whatever reason, I, have, well, I know there's a reason, but uh, is it safe to assume? Because I do this a lot, and when I when I hear the word Christ. Uh, it seems like uh, I got a pretty good um, definition years ago, and that was just simply, uh, it means anointed. Is, is that accurate to you? Um, I mean, it, amongst other things, of course, it can mean, but that being one of the, the pure definitions. I'm trying to remember. Does that sound correct to you, Chuck? Yes. The, okay. the name, well, in the Greek, it's Christos, and... Uh, and that word means anointed one. And our word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. And the Greek word in Hebrew is, well, the actual Hebrew is Mashah. But uh, it's usually translated Messiah. And that's the equal term. And a anointed one within scripture was as far as the people of Israel were concerned, a prophet, a priest, or a king. All three were anointed. And there are numerous examples of each one that were anointed. When Saul became a king, if you remember, Samuel came and anointed him to be king. Same thing with David. Uh, Samuel did the same thing. And then uh, uh, priests were anointed back over in the book of Exodus. Right? can't remember what chapter off the, hand, off the top of my head. But anyway, the priests were anointed. Aaron and his sons were anointed by Moses. And then also prophets were anointed at different times. So when we talk about Christ, the anointed one, he was, he was a prophet, priest, and king, one of those things, but in Christ's case, he's all three of those things. And there are a num number of passages that we go to that would indicate that. He certainly was a king. John recorded in the book of Revelation that he's the king of kings. He is a priest. A priest makes it possible for the people to worship God, and he makes it possible for us to worship God. And he is a prophet. A prophet brought the message of God to mankind. Well, that's what he did. He brought 
brought the message of God to mankind. So that's what the word Christ means. And I know that others have put other definitions on it, but that's, I mean, that's the pure definition. And, uh, and that's really what we should know, that he is the anointed one because he is the prophet and priest and the king. There you go. <clears throat> Thank you, Chuck. Um, is there anything else? Well, and bringing up the, the Antichrist, mm -hmm. um, like you pointed out, it's and going by just what I uh, admit, what I do, um, when I see that, especially when it's very specifically not talking about an individual, mm -hmm. um, the individual, if you will. Um, but it can talk about anyone who is not anointed with Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is basically what you've been talking about this morning. Anyone who um, does not have his doctrine, does not have him. Um, right. I throw that definitely into the, the uh, anointed category. I feel anointed all through him. If we talk about anointed in the sense that we have yes, the yeah, truth, just yeah, yeah. The blessing. Of, yeah. Definitely. Um, there we go. Yeah, because you think about anointing, and we have to be careful, and I understand what you're saying, because we have the truth, we feel like we have, yeah. Uh, because anointed, sometimes today, we know that word is used a lot in the denominational world. We kind of, people kind of get that miraculous sense. Uh, but in the, we are, you know, to kind of go along with that, the Bible tells us that those who obey the gospel of Christ become saints. So we, sometimes when we talk about members of the church, we call them saints. And we are actually called a chosen priesthood. <clears throat> now, the idea we are chosen because we have obeyed the gospel, we are continuing to obey the gospel, and because of that, we are God's chosen people, and we have that truth with us. And uh, <clears throat> but we think about <clears throat> we come out the Antichrist, we start talking about the anointing. We have a lot of people today who will, because of their theology, will go, we know much further than that. Kind of places that the idea that when we say anointing, we don't mean just we have the truth from God's word and Everything is trying to mess up on me today. Um, but that we have, in the sense that people say anointing, that just mean we have the truth in God's word. They mean something miraculous. Sometimes you want to say, well, God speaks to me, right, directly. Now, in a more biblical sense, we could say, yeah, he does, but it's through the Bible, right? And so um, there's a lot of things that we have talked about already in, in Second John that have been like a lot of scriptures sometimes, abuse. They've been pulled out to say things that they don't say. Uh, you know, people, there's been a lot of books about who is the Antichrist, which a simple definition is anyone's against Christ. Uh, you know, who, you know, you go in the book of Revelation, it, and far as skeptics and things like that go, it only gets worse. But the Bible, as we have seen already, it answers all those questions. And I think what we have a problem with me times, you're talking about, trying to call the truth and abide in doctrine of Christ is that people want to, you know, you hear things over the years. For example, I grew up in a Baptist denomination, not picking on them for those who are listening, but that's where I grew up and that's what I knew. Uh, and they had a lot of ideas and still do about the book of Revelation. You know, my, one of my mother's friends said one time, I, was, I don't know how old I was, uh, not old enough I had any idea what he's talking about. And he said, well, I believe we're in the seventh trunk. What are you talking about? Today, I'd probably be like, okay, can you explain that? 
I might have a little more fun with uh, say fun with that. I might be having more interest in what he's talking about, right? But now, if you pull that out, people would say, well, that means <clears throat> they would open up Book of Revelation and say, well, that, you know, you're in this period of, of hardship and distress and all that stuff. But logically speaking, throughout history, the Christian is in constant distress, all right? I mean, from, from the time, you know, if you go back and look in, in Old Testament, people of God, constant distress. People in, in, in the New Testament time period, including us today, constant distress, constant hardship. But people, to talk about the Antichrist, another big thing here, not to go too far on, is the quote-unquote tribulation, right? There are those who believe there's one great tribulation before, you know, Satan comes back and reigns, this, that, and the other, which none of those things are, are accurate. The great tribulation is really the tribulation that the church faced. Uh, there we're talking about the book of Revelation, the church of Jerusalem, before, before that whole town was, uh, all of Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, we today, as Christians, tribulation, we always face tribulation. So tribulation just means hardship or persecution. So in that sense, what time has a Christian ever not faced tribulation? Um, but I say all that to say that people will pull things like the Antichrist out of context and the idea of, of, the, of having an anointing out of context. Uh, but do we have the truth of God's word? Yes. The problem is not having the truth of God's word. The problem is listening to it. Okay. The word anointed, and I didn't go into this detail about this particular thing, but it, it really, all it does is refer to someone that's been appointed. Mm -hmm. So when Saul was anointed, he was appointed to be king. When David was anointed, he was appointed to be king. When, when uh, Aaron and his sons were anointed by Moses, they were appointed to be priests. And so that's all the word actually refers to. When Christ, uh, being the anointed one, he was appointed to come to this earth, sent from God to come to this earth, and was appointed to live upon this earth in order to die for our sins. Well, if in a broad sense, all men are having appointments. Every single one of us in a very broad sense. I mean, we have an appointment to be Christians and to follow God's word. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. So we have another appointment, and that's for all men. Uh, but he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, so we're all appointed in that way. But Christians are appointed to eternal life. Mm -hmm. and, and, and only Christians are appointed to eternal life as far as the, the New Testament age is concerned. Mm -hmm. So that's our appointment uh, and not some mystical, um, I don't know how to say it, but anyway, some mystical appointment that somehow that, you know, we uh, we feel this good feeling in mm -hmm. ourselves. You know, that's not the appointment at all. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more of a, a uh, an honest evaluation. Am I doing and am I following God's word? And if I'm doing and following God's word, I can have the security and the assurance that God will give me what he promised that he would give me. 
And that separates emotion from facts, really. Because we know emotion has a lot to do with it for a lot of people, right? And, and it's the difference between subjective mm -hmm. reasoning and objective reasoning. Right. Subjective reasoning is based upon the way I feel. Mm -hmm. And the illustration I always use is the temperature. In any room, if you've got people, there's going to be some that's going to, that are cold, some that are hot, and some that are just right. That's subjective reasoning. Mm -hmm. But what's the objective? What's to, to use objective reasoning, look at the thermostat. I mean, you know, that temperature, it doesn't make any difference to how you feel. It's going to be the accurate thing. And we, that's what we have to do, is try to set aside our feelings, subjective reasoning, and, and look at the objective uh, standard, which is the Word of God. Which, you know, and when you were talking about that, it makes me think, you know, sometimes you say subjective. If we have a bad day, if we make a mistake and our car breaks down and we feel like we have a bad attitude about it, we may feel like, we may, if we go as far, we may say, you know what? I'm not sure if I'm really pleasing to God because our bad day gets so bad. But objectively, like he said, look at the facts. Are we still saved by God if we are following God's word? We can't be making mistakes that day, you know, sin. Then yes, we are. Uh, you know, the Bible, there's a lot of emotion in the Bible. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Peter and Christ and others healed people. They went leaping and jumping for joy. There's emotion. People who are baptized, they come out of the waters of baptism. They are emotional. Uh, but... Uh, they are emotional based upon the fact that they have obeyed what the Bible said. The objective was to obey God's word. You know, emotion definitely can mislead us. Um, you know, sometimes when we get into a worship service and we, we sing a song and we start really paying close attention to the words like we should be, uh, is, it not, is it uncommon sometimes to be a little bit emotional about it? Now, I think about the song, for example, uh, none of self and all of thee, which is talking about giving less of yourself and more to God. Eventually, at the end, it's all of God and none of you. To me, that's a very tough song to sing because of what is trying to help us understand what we should be doing. Now, emotion is not, can be a good thing. It's not wrong to get emotional about seeing those types of things. But we can't amount, allow emotion like Chuck was saying to be our guide, right? You know, we, are, we can be emotional singing things, emotional when we hear a lesson, but when we do things, we want it to be sincere and based upon the fact of what God requires from us, not upon what we feel, uh, because feelings can be <laughs> very misleading. Uh, when I was, I'm giving a lot of illustrations, but when I was in Kansas years ago, a long time ago, and I was sitting in a congregation, and we were actually talking with the idea about possibly going and preaching there, that type of thing. And before we had that, it was Saturday night before we had a service the next morning, uh, the congregation, which was small, uh, met and had a meal. Well, <laughs> I got there. The men were all in one room, the ladies all in the other room, not because they were segregated, but because they wanted to drill the new guy coming in, possibly coming in. And well, they started asking some questions and things and giving Bible answers. And one of the men replied, well, I don't know what the Bible says, but I believe, which sounds a whole lot like I feel, is that emotional or is that objective? Well, that's emotion. Because what he's doing is, what he's really saying is, what the Bible says, but I really just don't care because I want to do this. 
That's all I have to hear, at least from him. Uh, and so emotion can be very dangerous. And in certain circumstances, it's not wrong. We're talking about religious things, but we don't want it to be our God and our standard of judgment uh, when it comes to biblical matters. Okay, let's look at Third John uh, for a few moments here anyway. Now, Third John, verse 1, he says here, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Uh, Gaius is a name occurring several times in the New Testament. Um, he is, as he says, whom, whom I love in truth. He says, the beloved Gaius, which tells you he probably knows this person pretty well, right? I don't say I love you to every single person I meet, uh, you know, to brothers and sisters in Christ who have a great closeness to, you know, when, I, when we are together, hanging out, doing whatever, and they leave. Love you, man, you know. Uh, sometimes it's in Christian love, and sometimes it's I love you if you need anything, you know, whatever it may be. You know, uh, here he beloved Gaius, he loves him, he knows who he is. He says, whom I love, and he says, in truth, which means he knows him, he cares for him, but he also knows he here, he knows that he is in the truth. He knows that Gaius is a person who's falling after the truth, which as we saw previously back in 2 John 9 is the doctrine of Christ, right? Uh, verse 2, he says here, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, what he's saying here is not difficult to understand, right? He wants them to grow. He wants them to be in a good place, to have, you know, you think about verse 2, it's really the absence of, of drama and it's the uh, presence of growing spiritually. Drama to me is one of the things I have no desire to be a part of. Uh, drama, when I say that, I mean in the sense that people get up and up for about things and make a big deal about things that are not a big deal or things that should be talked about in private or people talk about things that may not even be true. And I don't, I don't have time for that. If we're honest, the Bible says we shouldn't either. Looking at verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and in health, and then he says, just as your soul prospers. Now, he's not talking, what he's talking about here in verse 2 is they, did it, they are growing spiritually. He wants them to grow in the knowledge of God. Because I don't care how many times you read the Bible through, from Genesis 1-1 to all the way through in Revelation, if we truly read it and study it with the intention that we want to know all we can about God, we're going to grow from it. And you've heard me say before, at least some of you have, that if you read your Bible to study it in the sense that you take notes, you think of things, maybe you read a chapter and something sticks out to you and write it down, what that, you know, what, how that encourages you or what that means. You have a question, you write it down so you, so you can maybe search out the answer or ask someone else you think might be able to help you. When you do that, and you do that every single day, and you get through a book, you know what you just made? You just made your own commentary of a book, your own notes. And you go back the following, you know, the next time, it's probably going to grow even more. And you're going to see what you learned last time and remind you, you know what, this is why I'm reading this book. This is why I'm reading uh, the scriptures so I can continue to grow. So he wants them to prosper. He wants them to be growing. Because you think about in school, when I was in preaching school, we had to take Greek class, which I'm not a Greek scholar, not even close. That doesn't have to attest to that. I'm not a Greek scholar. Uh, but it's one of those things where our teacher used to say, if you don't use it, you lose it. Well, spiritually speaking, if we don't study the Bible, it starts to slip from our minds. We begin to forget what we have learned, 
And we don't want that to happen. And so we want to be those who are always prospering. Verse 3 says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walked in the truth. Now, have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm going to get up and testify today? What does that mean? In a biblical sense, what is he doing? Giving basically a report, right? Look, he's saying, verse 3, and when they came, he says, they, they testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. It means they came back and they told me that you were walking the truth. That's all that means. But again, that's not one of those words about testifying that people misapply that today. Because, and we know in some groups today, when a person gives them testifies and talks about, many times it's about what God has done for them, or it's about their, you know, coming out of the world, coming to Christ. It could be a man, it could be a woman, it could be a child. And we don't find examples of that happening in the New Testament church. If we want to talk about, uh, you know, what God has done for us, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's, with everything, there is a proper setting. You know, Paul tells us to do all things decently and in order. And we know today, there's a lot of times we see things going on around us in the, in the religious world, so to speak. They are far from decent and in order. Uh, you know, if you go into a congregation, you see things going on in a worship service, you think, is this a worship service or is this a rock concert? Why are the people rolling in the floor? Now, I say that to say that, uh, you know, in the past, some of us may have visited congregations before, hopefully before we came and obeyed the gospel, uh, and not after, that we may have visited places, including the denomination, and you see things that you can see anything, let's be honest anymore. But just because we sit inside a place is labeled a quote-unquote church building doesn't mean it's right. That's why we use the Bible for our God. So they are walking the truth. He is testifying or reporting of, of this uh, brother walking the truth. He says, just as you walk in the truth. Verse 4, he says, for I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. He's not talking about literal children. He's talking about these members of that church at that location. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. If a member of your family or loved one obeys the gospel, is there anything really that's probably going to, is there anything ever going to top that? Probably not. Because that signifies when a person obeys the truth, when you're standing, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, being baptized, and then remaining faithful to God. But when a person is baptized, following having done those other things the Bible tells us we need to be doing, and we see them obey the gospel, there's no other feeling, is there? You know, I've been present at Bible studies and I've baptized, to use that term, uh, people before. So when, when you study with someone and you baptize them, I tell you what, you feel like you're ready to go and take on the world. And here in verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk into their following God's word. Nothing brings them more joy, more happiness, and we should feel the same way. And if we're honest, it's not just that when we walk in the truth, that we hear someone who's walking the truth, but isn't it true that we should be glad when we hear the gospel being preached or taught in truth? Because if we're honest today, is that common anymore? No, it's not common. Now, for some of us who attended 
who have been members of the church for a while, we may say, well, it feels like it's common because of where we attend and where we visit. We know where to go, so we hear it all the time. But if you go into the world and we drive down this road going back into Uligaw, you're going to see it's not common. You're going to see denomination. You're going to see a domination. You're going to see denominations all through the town. But you won't find the truth there. Sure, you may find hints of it here and there because, if we're honest, anybody can stumble upon the truth sometimes. But to teach the salvation that the Bible teaches, to teach the worship that the Bible teaches, and all those things the Bible teaches, you won't find that in these buildings down the street. I don't say that to say that we are above them. I'm saying that to say that we want to make sure that where we are is where the Bible is being taught. Because where the Bible is not being taught, how can you obey something that's not, that is not going to be in accordance to God's word? <clears throat> Looking at verse, um, verse 5 here. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the, for the brethren and for strangers. And so obviously these individuals here in verse 5 have been uh, helpful to brethren, but he also says here in verse 5, for, and for strangers, which would, could include those who, who they don't, who are new to them, maybe your brothers who they don't know yet, but it could also literally mean just strangers in the sense that non-Christians have never met them before. Uh, it could be reference to them being benevolent, helping them in some way. Uh, and he says they are doing, he says you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. So however you're helping them, you're doing it for everyone. Because there are some out there today who say, if you help someone from the treasury of the church, they have to, and they have to be a church member. Where is that in the Bible? No one told Christ that we fed these four and five thousand people. Well, they, have they obeyed the gospel? Not all of them. And so the Bible does not teach us that. In fact, the Bible tells us to do good to do, do, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, which means we do good to everyone. We especially take care of the brethren of the church, but we do good to everyone. And he says they've done this for brethren and for strangers there in verse 5. Okay, we're going to stop there.